Hey listeners, thank you for tuning in. We, the Ultra Crepidarians, just wanted to drop in this quick disclaimer before this episode, episode 27, that the audio quality on this episode was not ideal. Um, we realized a little too late that we had some technical audio issues that we attempted to fix in post, but uh, we recognize that the audio quality of this episode is not the greatest. That being said, we hope you still enjoy it, and thank you for tuning in. Salutations, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. This is Three Men in a Basement, and we are the Ultra Crepidarians. My name is Colin McLeod. Mark Hall here. Action Jackson. Action Jackson. Flaxon Wax. The Saxon, I think we established. Yeah. I thought he was Taxon. I am Taxon sometimes. I'm paying all kinds of taxes. In this podcast, we review movies and we deliver to you, the listener, an average schmuck's opinion about hidden gems in the wide world of cinema. Uh, in the show, we try and target movies that are not. Total blockbuster smashes. We also aim for ones that are not so obscure that you couldn't get your hands on a copy even if you wanted to. Instead, we like to aim for that sweet spot right in the middle. Movies that maybe you've heard of and never seen. Maybe you've seen, but it's been a while. And uh, you need a, a little bit of encouragement to know whether or not these are worth digging out of the closet. Dusting off, throwing on the phonograph, and um, uh, dancing around a jaunty tune with. With the wolves. With the wolves. So, like, you're saying if you found this under a basket, you should put it in a DVD box? Yeah. 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 What was that? The basket? The basket? Or do we... What basket are we talking about? Uh, the basket in Grandpa's attic. Oh, the basket case. Which Grandpa? Uh, Grandpa Jack, I think. Got it. Yeah. Ooh. We review these movies, and we deliver to you our take on whether or not uh, we think they are worth watching, and uh, this week... We reviewed the movie. The Express. The Express. The Express. That was uh that was very like hocus pocus yeah. of us, I thought. Like, you know, just like this. We we fucking nailed that. I hope that got picked up as well as I thought. Uh yeah, so the Express has nothing to do with Hocus Pocus. Or pineapples. Or pineapples. Yeah. This was my first time seeing this movie since it was in theaters, and I think I only saw it in theaters because I worked at the theater at the time, and I caught a bit of it, and I was like, oh boy, and, oh boy, I don't know why I said it like that, like it was fucking oh howdy duty time. Howdy duty time. Howdy duty time. Um, <laughs> That's really close to uh, little Mickey, then. <laughs> it was really close, ho-ho. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, uh-huh. I didn't really... No, stay here with us, Mark. That's oh, make me leave, Mark. Be one of us, Mark. Stop, oh, oh. Wait, stop touching me. Ho, ho. Ho, ho. Bro, you cut that out, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, The Express. 2008 film. Rated PG. Um, PG? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I'd say PG. Yeah, it was surprising, because it deals with, like, heavier elements, you know, more socially relevant topics, but there was... It stayed wholesome. By the numbers, it was PG. I mean, there I, was no swearing or sexual content. I, I mean, yes, there was nothing that would classically perhaps be considered a swear word, but, like, the N-bomb is dropped several times. Like, yeah, that's You know, I, I, I don't know if I would strictly go with a no, this is no swearing, like, heavy language, you know, warning. Right. 
heard the argument made somewhat recently that the word was used contextually. So it, in some respects, you know, it is of its time. That, that doesn't mean that it is acceptable now. But I Nor was it acceptable then. No, but it, it places it within the, the context of the movie. And I think without it, wouldn't fully appreciate the gravity of the motions that, that were able to present. And to be fair, it's not a movie that was made a long time ago that had this language in it and then we're examining the movie as a product of its time mark is saying that it takes place within a time period yes exactly where that word was more prevalent and the you know the content of the movie is such that like you said the use of that word actually like to omit it would almost be like to do an injustice to uh the people who actually like you went through it and su- suffered as a result of it a little side note uh i was actually kind of surprised we didn't hear more utterances of it given the framework of when this movie was depicted but again being made in 2008 i feel like it was enough of a hot button that they tried to both convey the emotion that goes with that word without overusing it yeah i think also too they wanted that pg rating yeah and um i agree with them i mean i would have gone for that pg rating too if i was making the movie not only do you open yourself up to a wider audience um but much more importantly, your your audience expands to impressionable minds and helps them understand what actually was the plight of certain people at a certain time and what is the plight of certain people today um, and, and helps sort of like, you know, contextualize the world in many respects as a, as a teaching tool. But I think we're, we're sort of dancing around the issue. We should probably get to the yeah. what is this movie about, right? Yeah. We're kind of we're kind of yeah. circling. Um, so 2008 movie PG, two hours and 10 minutes. Um, felt right. Yeah, felt right. The IMDb description has this movie as a drama based on the life of college football hero Ernie Davis, the first African-American to win the Heisman Trophy. Yeah. Yeah. Nuts and bolts, for sure. Um, actually, IMDb, that's... IMDb lists this as a biography drama sport. Yep. Yeah. That's all I'm going to respond. I, I, I wouldn't put anything else in there. No, there's really nothing else that fits. But the, the description, I would say is almost verbatim what I tell people when I tell them to go watch this movie. Yeah. It gives nothing away, and, I mean, it, it is a biography. It's yeah, it's a true, true story. story. I feel like true stories almost get that, like, they almost get an extra pass of, like, you know, I'm, I'm a hardcore, no-spoiler kind of guy, but I feel like true stories are the ones that you can just sort of dip over the line in spoiler territory because you're like, oh, but it's a true story. Like, you, you, you could know that. You could just know that he was the first Black Heisman Trophy winner, or you could know that, like, you know, the Titanic sinks, or whatever. It's like, I might not be telling you anything you don't already... Yeah, it's for, not for, for yeah, example, exactly. I mean, I, I have not seen this movie, but I did know the story that it was based off of. I knew who the main character was... I knew the story, but it's still a movie about the journey. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta set it up and show how somebody's life went. Um, okay, so directed by Gary Later. Gary Later, classic Gary, am I right? Yeah. Guys? Come oh, yeah, on, Gary. Uh, I actually am a a fairly big fan of this guy's films. He's not a small director in any sense. I mean, he's done some off-the-wall stuff, um, but Zoo was one of my favorites. Um, He also directed the 2012 through 2016 show Beauty and the Beast, uh, which was sort of a modern retelling of the story. 
life unexpected as well as life on Mars. So lots, um, of, lots of life. This guy's really into life. Yeah, he's well. He's he probably been, only eats life cereal. Uh, I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, With brown sugar, though. He's not allowed on on any boat transit because he, he steals the lifeboats. Yep. He is the life of the party. He is, and he he does have a favorite board game. Yep. Monopoly. And, uh, yep, Monopoly. You've got it. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. But please direct a very fine film. Yes. Who do we have in this movie? Okay, so our main character, a uh, man named Rob Brown. I was not familiar with his other work. Um, he plays Ernie Davis. He plays the main character. Yeah. He was in pretty much all of the Batman movies directed by Christopher Nolan. Finding Forrester. Big big time. Big time. And Coach Carter. Coach Carter was a huge, huge one for him. Mm-hmm. We also have in this movie Dennis Quaid. Ah. Uh. I, I don't know anything about Dennis Quaid personally, but I can say he is one of my favorite actors. You know, and I know he, like, I, I feel like, in many respects, he's got that, like, infectious smile, and I know that's his thing, but it totally still works. Yeah. He's, even though he didn't smile a lot in this film, because he plays the coach, very gruff and rough. Right. Um, yeah, definitely a, a great actor. Came off the this is Clancy Brown. Clancy yeah! Brown. I'm not really familiar with most of his... Oh, dude, the Kurgan! The Kurgan? Yeah. The Kurgan Gurgan wasn't The Kurgan from, uh, uh, The Highlander, dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, so what I know him best from was actually this, like, weird, like, TV show. or I, dude. I think it was on HBO. So it was uh, called Carnival. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. You guys ever watched that? Yeah. Yep. But, dude, he was also in S- Starship Troopers. Yeah. He played Zeb. Oh, he was in Cowboys Were Sailing. Yep. Uh, he was also in... Dude, he was also in The Shawshank Redemption. He plays the, the like, lunatic... Head of the guards. Yeah, I feel like he's the kind of guy who, like, you instantly recognize. He can play a pivotal role in the movie, but he's not—he's never a headliner. So Clancy Brown is actually one of the world's most prolific voice actors. He's actually um, more successful and famous than Mark Hamill in the voice acting world. Excuse me, sir. Nobody is as successful or famous as Mark Hamill in any world, uh, even in a galaxy far, far uh, away. I'm just saying. I heard recently that he was the most prolific voice actor. Very recently. How recently? What? Oh, okay, that's all right. That are, it, to be fair, that is that is more up to date than my information. For those know. of you that don't know, Clancy Brown is also the voice actor that plays Mr. Krabs on SpongeBob. Sorry, Joker, but yeah, Krabs. I guess I guess Mr. Krab wins. Thanks, capitalism. <laughs> Mapitalism. Okay. Uh, who else we got? Uh, okay, we've got uh, Omar Benson Miller. He's uh, kind of a big deal. He is. He is a big deal. He was in 8 Mile. You'll definitely know him from 8 Mile if you've seen it. He plays Soul George. We've got Charles D. Sutton in this movie. Charles D. Sutton. Uh, you will definitely know his face. Um, he was kind of in some stuff as like a, not smaller parts, but he was in like Gothica and Alien 3. But what I actually know him from is A Time to Kill. He plays the sheriff. Have you ever seen A Time to Kill? Uh, he, you would definitely know him as the sheriff. You know, I'm going to say something that's probably never been said out loud. I recognize him from Alien 3. That's interesting. I recognize him from Longmire. Yeah. He does have a very memorable face. He does. Well, and he's one of those actors that you've probably seen before. You just couldn't pin him down. Oh, you definitely know his face. Uh, okay, a couple more rapid fire before we move on. Uh, people you know their face... Chelsea Ross, he looks a lot like Billy Bob Thornton. He was in Major League and Basic Instinct, um, but I know him as 
um, the bad guy's henchman in Richie Rich. <laughs> um, Saul Rubinek. Yeah. You know his face for sure. He was in a lot of stuff, but again, I know him from a little known movie that's also on our list to review, Undercover Blues. Oh, um, yeah. Also with uh, Dennis Quaid, and he and Dennis Quaid, uh, I kind of wonder, every, anytime I see two actors like reappear you know, together in, in another movie, it always makes me think, maybe, hey, maybe they're friends. Saul Rubinek is everywhere. Law and Order, Person of Interest, Warehouse 13, Beauty and the Beast, The Good Wife. Uh, the An- Bad Wife. Angie Tribeca. Warehouse Blue 14. Bloods, the Bloods. Red Bloods. Uh, Grey's Anatomy, Black Anatomy, uh, Schitt's Creek. Um, yeah, he's he's all over the place. So he's one of those people that you will definitely recognize. And the last one is Jeff Daltz who I know as uh, the douchey ex-boyfriend in uh, She's Out of My League. <laughs> uh, like, a conventionally handsome guy, but also, like, looks a, a bit like a tool. No offense, I'm sure he's a lovely guy in real life. Straight up, like, you look at this guy, and the, the first thing that comes to mind is meathead. Yeah, he's got that like, kind of chiseled jaw, you know, and, like, the perfect features, and you're like... Ew, you drive a Porsche and just don't stop talking about he it. He looks you? like the star quarterback that drives a very expensive vehicle and orders scotch at a party. Okay. That's an important description. Depending on the party, I also drink scotch at a party. I drink scotch at home on my couch. I drink scotch at home on your couch. That's true. Oh, we're way far afield. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, we talked about who directed it. We talked about the stars. I mean, do we... Do we feel like we can move on to recommendations? Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I think I think we're I think we're we're Lord Dern with this first part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thoughts? Um, I'm gonna kick it off and say yes, I recommend it. No caveats needed. Whoa, that's a first remark. Yeah, this is a this is a solid movie. Now it is like full on drama, so you know you got to be just ready for for a drama, but. Yeah, no, probably. I would definitely recommend it. Um, no caveats. However, I would say trigger warnings for those that are sensitive to language that we described earlier in the episode. Yeah. Um, I would say still watch it, but be prepared. Yeah. Uh, that's a, it's a big wreck for me. This is this movie is a, in my opinion, an awesome sleeper. Um, I feel about this movie that it's like. If you liked Remember the Titans, this movie is, I think, just as good. Maybe even better, to be perfectly honest. I don't. You know, I, I don't, would say it's better. They're 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 both very good movies, but um, I really enjoy this movie. And if somebody ever tells me that they like Remember the Titans, I'm like, oh, have you seen The Express? Because it's it's such a sleeper. Remember the Titans is a huge movie. Well, and the, think about think about the genre in which this movie appears. I mean, you've got Coach Carter, you've got Blindside, you've got uh, you know, remember the Titans, The Express. There's about five or six specific football movies featuring a black running back or quarterback. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, a good movie to like watch to watch with like your your family. Like, if you've got kids, watch it with them and then have a conversation. Yeah, um, because it's it's a slice of time, and I think it's important that. The, the things that this movie was calling to life, that you discuss them, you know, with, with the kids, with the younger generation. Well, and, 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 a lot and can be, a lot of positive conversations can be open. And pulling, pulling from that, uh, what I had just described, the list of movies featuring, you know, black football players, think about the time pieces that those movies represent. 
each one of them happens in a different decade, and each decade is later than the last, or, you know, moving forward. The Blind Side is a modern movie about a black football player who still undergoes the same struggles that Ernest Davis does in The Express. So if you think about that, that's 50, 60 years apart, and they're still undergoing the same struggles. I mean, I mean, plenty of struggles. I he probably wasn't having throwing the bottles thrown at him, but I'm right there with you. But um, no, I think the only caveat I would give to this movie is strong racial language. So if you're sensitive to that, you know, it's not like it's not Django Unchained. It's not every it's not every thirty seconds, but it is. You know, it's there. And then also, if you're just like not a sports fan, um, I think you can get a lot out of this movie, even if you don't like sports. But there are some people who will avoid a sports movie like The Plague, and like I think those, I think those people might struggle with this movie if they can't appreciate the other sort of like social commentary aspect of it. I will say football is my least favorite sport of all sports, and I I really enjoy even this movie. more than competitive nipple pinching. Yes, that shit is exciting. Especially when you participate. Oh, I was participating is my least favorite part. Of oh, movie. that's my favorite part. Good God. Mark. And we're talking American football here. Yeah. Uh, we're not talking about the soccer. I would rather watch soccer. Are there any soccer movies out there that like really like bubble up? Bend it like Beckham. Shaolin soccer? The, the big Ooh, green. Shaolin soccer, big, big green. green. Yeah, okay. Oh, uh, Green Street Hooligans. Yeah, we got we got some. We got some. Don't don't you don't you shit on our soccer. Very well. <laughs> Very green well. Street Hooligans, Elijah Wood and Charlie Hunnam. So we all recommended it. Uh, yeah. Uh, Rex all around. Are we ready to go? Voila! Okay. Wait. I'll, all right. I'm gonna hang on. Pause. I'm I'm gonna give Mark another crack at that. Skookawala! Oh god, he did the same thing! No, no, no! <laughs> Skookawala? Bwah. Bwah. Thank you, Jackson. Yeah. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Yeah. Mark, get your shit together. Don't pretend like we got rules, Tom. <laughs> I'll say it again. Bwah. Bwah. We're in spoilers. Squala. We're in spoilers. How's the movie start? It starts with the beginning. Oh yeah, so... Which is... A pretty good place to start. I, I I I typically like to start things there. Mm, I'll start when I was a child. I was born at a very young age. <laughs> okay, so the first memorable scene of this is we've got two kids walking down uh, some train tracks. They're picking up bottles. Presumably, they're going to take them and, and get some change for them. Um, but they're they're just kind of walking down the rail rail track, having a good conversation, whatever. And then we see another group of kids um, kind of walking in the opposite direction, also picking up bottles. One group of kids white, one group of kids black. There is uh, a, a tense... Bit of a turf war. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would go turf war. The, the white kids kind of like ambush the black kids. Like, well, yeah, there's a lot more of them they, and they're like coming out of the bushes. Yeah, they definitely like knew they were coming and set them up and surrounded them and were like ready throw down. to beat the shit out of them. It's not even a throwdown. It's not even a fight. Like, it would have been a slaughter. I mean, it's like it was like 15 kids on two. Yeah, um, yeah. With they, bats. They literally just wanted to like beat up some okay. some kids. Some some black kids. To be, like to put a point on it. And it was actually like it was really like a well done scene because you just you feel like it's gross to just watch to watch it and these kids you know are basically like give us your bottles and maybe we'll let you go 
And, and this this scene takes place in 1940. 1949. 1949? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the train kind of rolls by. One of the kids kind of jumps on that train, books it out of there. The other kid with the bottles is kind of stuck there, now surrounded by some 15-odd kids who are kind of closing in around him. And this guy just, like, wraps the bottles up, you know, and is, uh, kind of wraps the bag up, and then just takes off running. And in almost like a, like a force jump esque way. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was awesome. It was, it was, it was impressive. I, the, the coolest part to me was like the fact that he had the bottles. Like he, he didn't jump on the train with his friend because in order to do that, he would have had to let the bottles go like his friend did. So he not only was running with his bottles, he was running with a bag of his friend's bottles. And he just fucking takes off and like 15 kids are fucking chasing him. And he just outruns them all. Like, I've, I've through seen, backwoods. I've seen Olympic hurdlers with less impressive displays. Like, this was amazing. So fast forward about 10 years. He's playing high school football. Uh, he is really kicking ass. He is dubbed the Elmira Express, and he is just running through people. He's, a, he's he an amazing tight end. wicked fast. Crazy fast. He starts getting quite a few offers from a lot of different colleges. One of them is Syracuse University, the head coach. Uh, what is his... What is his character, like, the real guy's name? The guy who, the character Dennis Quaid plays? Yeah, so Dennis Quaid plays him, Ben Schwartzwalder. Yeah. And so he is reviewing tape, basically, in his office, and Clancy Brown, who plays his assistant coach, is feeding him uh, reels of players. And he's like, wasn't there a kid from Elmira? He says, yeah. And he says, so you're like, why the fuck wouldn't we review this kid just because he's black? And they check tape. Of course, the movie's about him. Ernie Davis is fucking amazing. And so they go and check him out in person. He's also being recruited by uh, Notre Dame. And he's trying to decide between these two schools. Immediately following this, uh, there is a scene, a very important scene, where there's a press conference held with Jim Brown, who is a former Syracuse player who just got recruited by the Cleveland Browns. And it becomes readily apparent that he absolutely should have been the Heisman Trophy winner in, what is this, 1959? Mm -hmm. um, he absolutely should have been the Heisman Trophy winner that year. Like, set the, the running yards record, broke a whole bunch of other records, you know, was, was the MVP of multiple games, just an outstanding player. And they're interviewing him, and they're like, you did all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Like, how do you feel? And he's like, I feel okay. And like, I feel like there's something missing, and the thing that's missing is, you know, he didn't say it, he didn't say it, but the Heisman Trophy. Yeah, um, the, the reporter lists off all of the things that he's won and all of the things that he's done, and he's like, there's one thing missing, and he's like, you're referring to the Heisman. I'm like, yeah, why shouldn't I refer to the Heisman? I'm the only... Like, no, 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 he says, he says no, I, I'm not going to say that, because if I say that, then the headlines tomorrow are going to read, uh, angry black man doesn't know his place. And his his amazing quote following that is, I know my place, gentlemen. It just made me not where you like it. Mm. And that Which, was, ugh. dude, that just, like, one-two punch to the gut. That was amazing. Uh, so, <clears throat> immediately following this, at the recruiting session with Ernie, or at the recruiting session to recruit Ernie, the coach, played by Dennis Quaid and Jim Brown, go to talk to Ernie, and Dennis Quaid brings him, basically, because... He's another black player on a team who just sort of made it through the entire program and is now going to the NFL. And he thinks that he can sort of level with Ernie about what it's going to be like at Syracuse. 
and um, they spend basically like a day together, and Ernie is just enthralled. He knows everything about this guy. He knows all of his stats. Very excited to be with him, and Jim Brown's trying to give him some advice, some understanding about what he's going to experience. Um, you know, there's a scene where he basically says, in many respects, you'll experience the exact same thing here that you will anywhere else, um, which is actually kind of heartbreaking. That, yeah. like, in, in such a horrible circumstance, there's not e- he's not even saying, like, this is your safe haven and, like, this really, like... This is your ticket out. Yeah, this, this, is, this is safe haven in, like, a real, like, shitty situation. He's like... No, in most ways, it's going to be basically exactly the same as you've experienced before. But this coach is a very good coach, and he will make you better, and he will potentially prep you for the NFL, so... He also said, if you ever tell him that I said that, I will come down here all the way from Chicago and kick your ass. Cleveland, yeah. Yeah, Uh, Cleveland. He says, says, if you ever tell him I said that, I'll hop in the first plane back from Cleveland and wring your neck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you can tell that, like, Jim Brown feels in some ways, not that he's manipulating, but he recognizes that he was only called to have this conversation because of life. And while he, I think, appreciates the opportunity to inspire, you know, someone else, a uh, protege, if you will, he recognizes that there are other elements besides just inspiring a, a, a young, upcoming athlete. And... You can almost like see the calculus in his eyes that you know if you sort of decide that this is a bitter pill worth swallowing, just inspire the next generation. And sort of on that inspiring thing, one thing that I would really like to like point out about this movie is early in the movie, Ernie Davis and his grandfather, who he's got a very special relationship with, and his cousin are are walking down the street and they're walking in front of like Sears and Roebuck, and they're watching one of the televisions that's in the window, and they see Jackie Robinson for the first time ever playing in the major leagues and it is such an inspiration to them they're like there is there's a there's literally a black man playing professional baseball on um, tv on tv and and it really sort of set in their minds that this is possible and the first thing that actually popped into my head was i remember watching an interview with whoopi goldberg and the first time that she saw uh nichelle nichols on star trek she was a little girl and Uhura? yes, and she said that she ran into the kitchen to tell her mom she was so excited. She's like, "Mama, there's a black woman on TV, and she's not playing a maid or a housekeeper or anything. She is, she is, an she yeah, she's an officer. I mean, she's she's up there commanding respect. And actually, the true story that I heard kind of recently with because uh, you know Nichelle Nichols just recently passed. I was listening to an interview with her, and she was talking about how. She actually, like, did not like it on set at first and actually wanted to leave the show. And she was, yeah, she was speaking with Gene Roddenberry and he was like, please understand what I'm trying to do here. Like, I'm trying to inject diversity into a, like, a a horribly skewed representation of the American populace. Like, I'm trying to give young people who might identify with you a lot more than they might identify with another character on the show an opportunity to see somebody who looks like them, maybe talks like them, maybe, you know, maybe acts like them, whatever, trying to give them somebody that they can look up to, that somebody that inspires them. And she ended up having a conversation with Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. She she said something to him like, I'm not you. I'm not out there marching. You know, I'm not Rosa Parks. I'm not protesting. I'm not doing these things. And Martin Luther King Jr. said, you are doing 
just as much as we are. You're just doing something different. You are giving people somebody to respect and understand in a time where respect and understanding are, you know, in short supply. I remember there was a specific interview with Gates McFadden from Star Trek Next Generation. Gates McFadden played uh, Will Wheaton's mother. Okay. But Gates McFadden was criticizing Gene Roddenberry in an interview because they were referencing Uhura. And they said it was revolutionary at the time to have a black woman playing an officer in a show about the future. And she responded with, yeah, a black officer in a show about the future, but she's still a black lady who answers the space telephone. And that's not enough. And I remember watching that and thinking to myself, wow, okay, yeah, they, they, they had representation, but she was still essentially reduced to a secretary. And while revolutionary at the time, a lot of people felt like Gene Roddenberry could have pushed the envelope a little further and done more with it. Yeah. I, I, I think I think it may be a bit of a myopic view to say, like, he could have done more in the sense that looking back with today's lens, if that, if, that was all, do. if that was all she was cast as, yeah, like, yeah, you probably could have done more by today's standards. But and I think this movie, the, the Express, really, like, gets at that that sort of hard line of like if gene roddenberry pushed it too far he wasn't the end all to be all of whether or not this show got greenlit right and if some racist asshole above him shut the show down now there's no nichelle nichols now there's no Whoopi goldberg yep you know and like i hate to you know i hate to fall into the camp of like slow play your hand but I, I just think of all of the amazingly healthy and pro-social messages that Star Trek delivered over the years. How many people it helped shape and understand and teach things like tolerance and empathy. And it's like, if none of that happened because Gene Roddenberry wanted her to be captain... Yeah. What is the greater evil there? Right. It, it all depends on your on your perspective. I mean, you can appreciate like if, if you're if you're sitting at ground level, are, are are we appreciating how far we've come, or are we using how far we've come as a foundation for where we want to go? Both are entirely valid. You know, I think it's entirely valid to say that Michelle Nichols' role was revolutionary and should be celebrated. That's amazing. But it's equally as valid to say. That's not where we stop. No, that's what I'm saying. I 100 percent agree. But the, but I think the problem the, that Jackson was outlining with what was her name? Gates McFadden. Gates McFadden, I think, was she was like retroactively applying. It's not enough. Yeah, I mean, you it, you, it you need to easy. proactively apply not enough and say like, yes, okay, we we reached that milestone. We've got you know Ahura, but that's not enough. We need to push the envelope further. We need to to incorporate more. It's not enough to have people look up to you know, a side character anymore, not a side character, but a, um, a supporting cast anymore. We need a lead. We need a this. We need a that. You know, cover all your bases. It does you no good to turn around and say, the step we took wasn't big enough. Right. Turn back forward and make the bigger step. Take the You're, step don't, that don't, was already made don't, and build on it. Don't cut down previous progress because it leaves you in a place where there's no place to go. Right. Basically. There's no step that you can take that in, in 30 years you can't look back and say, well, it could have been done differently, it could have been done bigger, it could have been done whatever. You can't do that. 
if you're building it'll, a, it'll serve you no purpose. If you're building a staircase and you keep trying to perfect that first step instead of making the rest of them, you're going nowhere. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's what this movie is about with the message of you know I'm not trying to be the best in my category. I'm trying to be the best, more or less. What we're talking about. At, and at multiple points in the film, um, I feel like we can skip over a little bit of the plot because a lot of it is just in the context of a football game. Um, we can move on to some of the bigger, finer points. Well, yeah. So it, real quick, if I can, if I can, yeah, just, uh, absolutely. I'm going to try and hit some hit some rapid fire beats here. So basically, Ernie Davis decides to go to Syracuse. As you can imagine, it's extremely difficult. He meets with just horribly racist policies both at the school, at local business, and on his football team um, with his fellow players, even though that is the place where he probably meets the least amount of resistance and racism, it is still very present. And I I, I feel like I have to mention there are also other black players on this team, and it is one of the only teams that has more than one black player on the team. Yeah. Yeah. It is just at the beginning of the integration of college sports. So there are teams that are still, you know, holdouts, basically, that are not integrated at all. And so there is sort of a montage of both training and game sequences, where initially Ernie Davis is not played. He then gets played, and they obviously realizes immense talent, and he begins winning their games, and they, they end up with uh, an undefeated season. Meanwhile, he develops a relationship with a young woman. Sarah. What else are we missing? What else do they, they do in the movie? I mean, a, a lot of is covered during that montage. You know, and I don't know if this was a part of that montage or not, but like a part of that is... You know they're they're going to games and you know the the hotel that they're that they're looking to stay at. You know er- Ernie and his fellow black teammates are are not allowed entrance into that hotel. And it's so powerful because you know this, this movie takes you from the, the the teamwork and the camaraderie that you find in like a typical sports movie, and then you know oh but not these guys exactly yeah it's it's yeah you're totally right there it's it's fucking hard to watch because you're like. You know, it builds you up in the same way that, like, like he said, like sports movies do, and you're like, "Fuck yeah!" Like, yes, we're a team. We're gonna do it. We're gonna go all the way. We're gonna rah rah rah. By the way, we gotta stay in a hotel tonight, and three of your players can't come in. Yeah. And you're like, and it really, I, I, I love the shooting because of that because it, it fucking like it takes the wind right out of your sails. Like it, it uses the same mechanisms to pump you up. And then pulls the wind right back out of your sails because you are essentially experiencing a teeny tiny fraction, a teeny tiny bit. A microcosm. Oh yeah, of what those players felt in real life by being pumped up with their team and ready to sort of like, you know, ready to to run them and gun them and get them. And then they get taken out at the knees because they're not allowed to walk in the building. Yeah, it becomes readily apparent that, like, oh, by the way, we're still second-class citizens, and it's absurd. So you've got this Um, celebrated football team that's 9-0, undefeated season, staying at this hotel that is relatively adjacent to the football field where they will be training and playing, and it's not not a rinky-dink place. I mean, it is a nice place. And right at the door, these players are stopped, and they're like, yeah, we don't allow colored folk. Yeah, and, and, they, and they, I, 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 I say that, that it's 
it, it makes me cringe to say that. And then they tell them, hey, you've got to go in the back door and we'll have the staff direct you to your room. And they direct them basically to this broom closet with three cots. Yeah, and it was not a room. It was like a storage closet with a nasty smell that they converted into a Like they very, they very clearly hastily threw this together to make amends to this football team. Not even amends. It was, it was a, like a... It was like a, a hasty, half-assed solution. Like, to the okay, fact well, that, here's where they can sleep if they're going to sleep. Yeah, to the fact that our policy is that no black people are allowed in here. It was is it was hard to watch. I can only imagine what it must have been to experience. I can't imagine it because I've never experienced it. So we're going through this movie kind of quick, and it makes sense in the sense that like it, it, it's a it's a sports movie, and it's also a movie where I think the sort of the the context drives it in many respects. So you kind of know where it's headed anyway, right? So there's a montage of games, practices, whatever, where Ernie Davis is sort of garnering attention. He's racking up the touchdowns and the, the foosballs. He's really um, scoring those alley-oops. Love those little spinning guys. Oh, he's, I mean, if he hit a three-pointer for every time that he bunted the ball, I mean, he checkmate. That's, yeah. Checkmate. Yeah, and so there's, there's the sports side of it. There's an interesting scene where they're competing against, is it West Virginia? Yes. Yeah, ooh, that's a heavy That's scene. a hard one. Um, Ernie takes it all the way down to the, to the end of the field there, but not quite a touchdown. And he gets pulled out of the game so that another player can make the touchdown. And, and the reason for this is the coach feels like the environment that they're in when they're playing West Virginia, the crowd that is present at this particular game, that they could run into real physical danger if Ernie is allowed to make the points in this game, really. And Coach says something that I feel like he stands by in the sense that he's trying to protect his whole team and doesn't understand quite fully the ramifications uh, towards his black players. And that is something akin to they have a different set of rules down here. Mm -hmm. And Ernie responds back to him with, I think their set of rules are the same set of rules as yours. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Just maybe, Coach. That the rules down here are your rules too. Yeah. And and I think that made Coach... That stopped him in his tracks. Yeah. He had to take a hard look at himself and what he stands for and think about, am I censoring my team and my players to fit the stadium? Or am I playing my team to their strength to win? Mm-hmm. Am I sacrificing a win to appease the masses? Or am I letting my players be who they are for the sake of the game? Yeah, because you're... Quite literally, like... You're taking your star player out of the game yeah. to not piss off the stadium. And, like, to, to give you kind of, like, to contextualize this a little bit, literally before they, like, headed out to the field, he was saying, I want helmets on everybody all the time, even if you're not playing. And then he addressed the three black players, Ernie and... and Art and Jack. Art and Jack, and said, you guys stay in the middle of the pack when we leave, like, well, basically when we head from the locker room to the field to kind of insulate them from, you know, I mean, there people were throwing bottles, people were, you know, throwing more, I mean, everything. Popcorn, uh, food, yeah. beer bottles. And so not only is sort of the general American sort of racist machine in full steam, they headed into, like, dangerous territory. Yeah, the, 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 the sort of 
part of racism in the North, a.k.a. West Virginia. Ah, I just lost West Virginia for us. You, you lost Alabama. I lost West Virginia. Who else? Who else are we taking aim at? Oh, we lost the, the Germans. Oh, we lost, lost the Germans, yeah, cause for their Yeah. Um, so what happens next? Well, we, we, we talked about, the, we talked about the hotel. You know, we, we covered kind of the, the, the montage of scenes. They, they play several scenes kind of throughout this movie. So the next big thing is they're, they're invited to the, the Cotton Bowl. They are invited to the Mark. Cotton Bowl and the Orange Bowl. And yeah. in the locker room, the coach basically says, if we go to the Orange Bowl, we are playing the eighth seed. If we go to the Cotton Bowl, we are playing the second seed. We are playing Texas, who's never played before. And many people speculate that we are only number one because we haven't played them. And, and in order to be the best, you, you gotta have to beat, beat the, the best. best. Yeah. Which is a great line. Oh. Right, yeah. right up there with, can't win them all if you don't win the first. <laughs> right. Right. Um, can't win a marathon unless you put some band-aids on your nipples. I got nipples, Greg. We're, Can you milk me? <laughs> we're, we're kind of slowly approaching kind of towards the end of the, the, the movie here. But one of the other plot points within this movie was Ernie's health. And mm. you see, um, and they kind of, they, they drop little scenes kind of throughout the movie. And you don't really know exactly where they're going with it. But he starts having his nosebleeds that are coming out. Um, at one point, it's, you know, after a game and he can kind of like shrug it off. I believe he took a, took a hit. There's another scene where he's with his girlfriend at the time and his nose starts bleeding and, uh, he, he makes a reference of because um, you know, I, I took a hit or something. I'm kind of... It's kind yeah, of it's like another player, like, he gets, he said he sometimes, after he takes a hard hit, wakes up and there's blood in his pillow and he has no idea where it came from. Yeah, and he's well, you, you didn't take a hit. Yeah, you didn't take a hit recently, so... Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's another big part of this movie, and, you know, arguably just as important as, as every other element. So they end up going out to Texas. They go to Texas, and it is, it turns out, believe it or not, just as racist as West Virginia in the 1960s. There's a really poignant, like, two frames, right? Uh, But they're pulling in in the bus uh, to show up to Texas at the Cotton Bowl. The bus pulls up. The camera pans up, and you see the Civil War Southern flag hanging at the stadium, right in front of the bus. The Confederate flag? The Confederate flag. You see the Confederate flag hanging right in front of the bus. And for me, that that struck. Uh, the imagery was really strong because the first one to get off the bus is Ernie. Is Ernie. Um, so they they head into that Cotton Bowl, and like we do like probably in three beats, basically, like Ernie basically kicks ass and takes names, scores a whole bunch for them. They're up by 15, but the other team is gunning for him. And, and they know the, his weakness. Yeah, the, the week before in practice, he, he strained his hamstring. And so they're basically hammering his hamstring. Every time they tackle him, they're punching on his the back of his legs. And he scores all his points. Halftime comes, and um, they're like, yeah, you shouldn't play anymore. We're up by a whole bunch. Team starts losing. Ernie comes back out and kicks a whole bunch more asses and takes a whole bunch more names, and they end up winning the Cotton Bowl. And then, again, with this, like, really effective way to, to deliver to the audience member what the individual was probably, uh, just a tiny bit of what they were feeling. You know, you, you just feel nothing but elation for them, like, winning the, like, biggest college honor. They won the national championships. Everything's amazing. And then, right as they're celebrating, they get the news that, Oh, by the way, uh, the award ceremony is going to be held at this country club. 
and uh, black people are not allowed at said country club. And so everybody's like, uh, okay. Well, our now. MVP is a black kid, so uh, yeah, what the, are we going to do? Yeah, the coach says, uh, how do we feel about that? Yeah. At and, which point, Lundy, uh, who has given Ernie flack for most of his football career at this point, comes up and he goes, well, I don't know about you boys, but I hear they have great barbecue down here. There there are a few things that I love more than, like, a coming around redemption story. Yeah. Like, I love the character who's, like, such an asshole at the beginning, which is this character, and then by the end of it is the biggest defender of that person. I love that so much. It is so heartwarming to me. It's a bit of a trope Pe- in a sports movie. It is, but at the same time, I feel like people... You know, it doesn't feel like it because we, we as people, dig in like ticks. But people are actually capable of change. And it is something that can be done. I'm going to tell a story here. A close friend of mine is far, far older than me. Older than, that could be my grandparent. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in 1927 in a very rural community in Michigan. You can imagine what his views were on race and integration growing up. And I remember him telling me he, he ended up going to university. He went to the University of Michigan and he was in his dorm with a Jewish kid. This was just following the Second World War, so you can imagine how sensitive the the Jewish kid was to racial and ethnic profiling and um, polarization of terms and stuff like that. And this friend of mine was going off about, you know, integration in schools and and was was particularly upset about things, just as kids do, sort of like running his mouth from like this sort of like garbled nonsense that he's heard in his youth. And his friend turned to him and said, said his name, which I'm not going to repeat. Um, for his anonymity, and he said, they're people. And he said, it hit me like a sack of bricks. It never had occurred to me. Never occurred to me that they were people. One year from that day, he was on the steps of the Ann Arbor City Hall protesting for civil rights. People can change. I'm not saying it's a common occurrence. Sometimes it's a slow and incremental thing. But people can and do change. And I think that's that's the thing that I find so redeeming about that character arc is it always shows the beautiful adaptations and understandings that we're capable of if we just like give ourselves the opportunity. Um, so they win the Cotton Bowl, and then uh, he's he's picked up for the NFL for the Cleveland Browns. Yep. Um, but then, in very short order, it's discovered that his nosebleeds were actually acute monocytic le- leukemia. Yep. Yep. So he's he's still on the team, but he's on a bench. Um, you know, we get a quick scene where he you know, he's called out in, uh, in in one of the games he's going. So he, he still gets that that satisfaction, but you know, he doesn't get to still linger on it. Yeah, and and unfortunately, Ernie Davis died before. He ever got to play his first NFL game. He died at 23 of leukemia. In 1963. But not after, uh, you know, not or rather not before winning the Heisman. For the first time, a person of color won the Heisman Trophy. And he broke that barrier and had a very, very large stroke of bad luck following that. And uh, unfortunately died, but was such an amazing inspiration to people in that time and place. Um... Heartbreaking story. But to be honest, one of the things I really liked about this movie was that it wasn't presented as a heartbreaking story. It, it really was presented more like a biopic, and it was like, we're not going to weigh in on whether or not this is heartbreaking, even though we know objectively it is. 
Um, we're just going to tell the story and let the viewer feel the things that these characters felt in that time and place. Yeah, I mean, like like I mentioned before, I, I know all about Ernie Davis and and Jim Brown, and having known the story before going into this movie, I had spoilers. I knew how it was going to end, but I wanted to see the journey. I wanted to be there, um, because it's a rare glimpse into something that we don't get to see. I mean, it happened before I was born. Uh, long before I was born. So knowing who Ernie Davis is, knowing his story, knowing his background, it was very inspiring to see his story be portrayed. Knowing that he played under the same number that Jim Brown did, uh, at the same college that Jim Brown did, for the same team that Jim Brown did because Jim Brown was his hero. And then inspiring players like Frank Little to play for Syracuse as well. I think that was like the the beauty too. Like I, I did a whole diatribe early about like Michelle Nichols and like, you know, the and the inspiration of Jackie Robinson and like what they did for people. Like this movie I think is probably the single best example in cinema I can think of of a situation where you, you they literally show three generations like Ernie Davis would not have been able to do what he did without Jim Brown. And Frank Little would not have been able to do what he did without Ernie Davis. Right. Like, and straight up. And as a result, I mean, um, they kind of made the joke of Frank Little playing under Ernie Davis's number. Uh, but with Ernie Davis's passing, the Cleveland Browns retired his jersey. And Frank Little actually played under the number 44, which was Jim Brown's and Ernie Davis's college number. So it was Frank Little's, pardon the pun, little way of honoring those that came before him, those that blazed the trail for him to succeed. Uh, so to, to go off of what was what Colin was saying, Frank Little could not have done what he did without Ernie Davis picking up where Jim Brown left off. Sorry, Floyd Little. Floyd Little. We've been Floyd saying Little. Frank Little. I knew I knew there was something up. Yeah, Floyd that's Little. my bad. Floyd Little. Um, another thing that we didn't mention, and we will just briefly before, but Floyd Little was played by Chadwick Boseman, a very young Chadwick Boseman. Unbelievable! And Who also recently passed away. Yes, from cancer at a very young age, um, which I think in some weird kind of way, I don't know how it's this is going to be interpreted. It's almost of... like... It, it, it's very poignant, right? Like, to have him as a small but very integral role in a movie about a young man absolutely just bursting to the seams of talent. Passing away passing in away the at early a young days age of his prime. From cancer. Yeah. And then that exact same thing happening to him. It's, 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 a, it's a heartbreaking poetry. Yeah, it's like a heartbreaking coincidence, almost. Like, I don't, I don't even know what to call it, but... The parallels are... are Staggering, really. Yeah, it's just Jack, Chadwick Boseman was so good. Um, another movie that I think is on our list um, that we're going to review is Thurgood, which mm. details the early life of Thurgood Marshall and Chadwick Boseman plays him. Um, so I think I think that kind of puts a bow on it, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, Ernie Davis dies, and they sort of like do the black screen with text to sort of explain how a lot of the rest of the characters shored up. Floyd Little and Jim Brown both had fairly illustrious careers. Nine at, seasons each. Uh, according to the text. And the coach, played by Dennis Quaid, had another ten seasons and got inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like as they were wrapping it up, this is kind of typical sports movie fair. Um, I thought that the deeper story at this point, and it, it left you feeling good. 
It left you well, feeling. Well, it, no, I mean, it left you feeling. Left you, <laughs> well, they, the, the surviving characters had happy endings, more or less. The, the surviving. They did. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And it, it, it definitely left you on a high note after tearing your heart out. Okay, so what do we like about this movie? Um, I... Specifically. I like all of it. Not specific at all. <laughs> that is that is about as non-specific as you can make it. I liked that this was the kind of movie that kept me involved. I didn't take too many notes during this movie because I, I was just genuinely interested in what was going on and I didn't want to I didn't want to detach from it. It's not specific, but it's sort of intangible. I just liked this movie. Can we talk about for a second the fucking hits? Oh my oh, god. sweet fucking Jesus. My back hurt watching this. This movie, oh. I, there are very, like, I mean, there are a lot of great, well-filmed sports movies that sort of, like, deliver a hit, but I, I can't think of a movie that, deli- like, like films hits harder than this. And I'm, I'm saying hits as in tackles, like football tackles. Jesus, some of the filming, like, Jackson and I couldn't shut the fuck up about, like, yeah. Oh, oh, ooh! Yeah, that was a hard one. My like, neck and my back are just aching from watching these tackles. Like at one point, Ernie gets tackled so hard he lands on his head and bends his neck forward. I'm just like, that's ah, a concussion and spinal damage. Is that a nod to the to the cinematography? I mean, because I mean these are these hits that take place in football all the time, but like the way that it was choreographed on screen really. It made you feel the impact more. Yeah. I mean, in a, it in was a no- close up and slow mo. Like, it was. Well, oh. and a nod to the Foley artist. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jackson, is there anything that, uh, that you liked or, or didn't like? I feel like I'm copycatting Mark at this point, but I can't point at a single point of this movie. And I say this with the full knowledge that they did use racial slurs. I can't think of a part of this movie that I did not like. I mean, did I like the fact that they used the N-word as a blanket? No. But in historical context, in the context of this film, in the context you, of where... It, you have to have it. You have to. You have to. It, 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 it whitewashes the, the movie if you don't. Yeah, the omission of it would do a greater disservice uh, to the movie. Uh, sort of different angle. The cutting between... I, I don't honestly know if it was real footage or not. I know some of it was, but some of it I think it just may have been like a sort of filter trick. But the movie did a, this really cool sort of flitting back and forth between what looked like real football footage from like fucking 1961. Yeah, and I wasn't like, sure if it was real or not. I thought I had that same thought. The, the very end, I know the very last one was real. I'm confident in that. But they did it so much that I don't know exactly what scenes were real and what weren't. And I thought that was a that was, I thought that was a fantastic effect. Oh, it was beautiful. There was a there was a specific effect that I greatly enjoyed in the Cotton Bowl after Ernie takes his really hard hit, and he's at this point where he's not sure he's he's limping, he's moving pretty slow for his speed, which is still faster than any other player on the field. <laughs> And you lose like ten percent of your speed and still fucking slay everybody yeah. in the field. Um, but they did this really cool trick where he's looking at the ball and suddenly there's almost like a glitch on the screen and you see that classic heat mirage that mm-hmm. you'd see coming up from like a hot pavement or you know a, a hot parking lot. Mm-hmm. You saw this heat mirage and the screen flickered for a second 
And in my mind, that was trying to depict something is wrong with Ernie. Well, yeah, so that's yeah. exactly what it was trying to do. And that, that was one of those things where it's like, I actually would have put that in something that I didn't like about the movie, like, at first. So, like, when you first watch the movie, they're kind of doing this effect, and you're like, that's that's kind of dumb. <laughs> that's, that's kind of like, it doesn't fit with the movie. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Um, it feels like they're trying to do something that's, like, a little bit more grandiose than this movie is supposed to be. It's supposed to be very real, very down-to-earth, a very real depiction of what happened. And you see this, like, sort of, you know, this wiggly, I don't know, like, heat mirage, like you said. And it's not until after the events of the Cotton Bowl that it gets revealed that Ernie has leukemia, and he's actually suffering from a lot of, sort of, the neurological effects of leukemia as well. And it's amazing how your mind changes and you're like, oh, actually those effects are really fucking cool and they're actually a really good idea to sort of subtly hint at the audience member that Ernie was going through something that even he himself didn't necessarily perceive but it was happening. And I think I thought that was so cool that they they threw that in before the audience even knew. Yeah, but at, but when you first encounter it, you're like, oh, oh, I don't, I'm not sure about well, this. Well, and but I, then you realize what it is, and you're like, oh, I, I got it. Okay, 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 this is cool. I will say, <laughs> um, they could have been more obtuse with it. Um, you know, they could have shown it and then swiftly clipped to Ernie making, you know, a, a, like shaking his head or trying to shake it off or something like that. But I think that would have been less obtuse. It, fair, yeah. Um, more obvious, I more guess. More obvious, yeah. Um, okay, okay. But in my opinion, that would take away from the integrity of it because, again, this was invisible. Ernie had no idea what was wrong with him. He just knew something wasn't right. Right, right, so exactly. So it wouldn't have made sense to clip to Ernie's trying to shake it off. Ernie's got, you know, Ernie recognizes something's wrong. Like, he just took a really hard tackle. For yeah. All he knows, he has a concussion, and that's the end of it. Well, and that's the, that, yeah, that is the beautiful thing, because he's the, he's the protagonist, right? He's carrying us through the story. And if he doesn't know what's going on... We, we shouldn't either. We shouldn't either, especially in a, a movie that is supposed to be as tight to the protagonist as a biopic is to be. Yeah. Um, so all that to say, I had nothing to dislike about this movie. So, okay, so you're pushing us into dislikes. Yeah. I agree with that. So nothing with you? Nope. I didn't have anything that really struck me. Um, the the main character's acting, I okay. I think I think could have like yeah. I, I think he was cast well as like 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 from a, a sort of physical standpoint. Like it grew he, on me. It grew on. I, but again, the the other thing too is like with a biopic, you don't know how much somebody is actually embodying the person that they're supposed to be sort of impersonating. So I can't say it was his acting necessarily, but he, he had a, a very, like, you know, a subdued kind of droll delivery. Mm. But maybe that's the way Ernie Davis was, and he knew that, and we don't as viewers. But I think the other thing is, like, sometimes when... I, I would say this, like, perhaps with, like, Harry Potter as well, even though I really like Daniel Radcliffe from what I understand as a person. I'd give Daniel Radcliffe's acting, like, maybe, like, a 7 out of 10. I give everybody else like a nine and a half out of 10. It's like, I feel like this kind of similar in that, like, I'd give the main character in this, the main, the main actor in this, maybe like a seven out of 10, but everybody else was a nine and a half. So like, it's a bit apparent, yeah. you know, in some respects. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I, it, he definitely kind of grew on me as I kind of further associated the character and, and the actor 
for me, the two characters that held the most weight in the actor was Grandfather and Dennis Quaid's character. Yes. You know, yes. They, for me, were the, the pillars of the movie part of the film. Uh, okay, so nothing else that we didn't like. Uh, did anybody have any quotes that we didn't throw out yet? I had a couple. So early on in the movie, uh, you see young Ernie uh, has a stutter. It goes away as he gains confidence, and he is watching, like you said, Jackie Robinson and Jim Brown, and as he gains confidence, he's watching his idols perform in front of the world and realizes that he has a skill, and he can do that too, and the stutter falls away. I found that really impressive. But um, he and his grandfather are reading scripture, and he's struggling to get through the words. So he says to his grandfather, the words, I know they're in there, but they don't come out straight all the time. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that because it showed, it's like, listen, I'm not stupid. I know what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I'm just struggling to say it. Yeah. And it's in my brain. Yeah. It's a matter of getting it out of my mouth. It's the tough part. Yeah. And I had forgotten that he had a stutter earlier in the movie. Yeah. They, they don't go back and, and they don't revisit it. Which also, like, you know, in many respects, may be a powerful thing for a person with a stutter to watch this and say, like, Ernie Davis struggled with a stutter and then, like, look at him. Now he's, you know, he's mm -hmm. up there, you know, giving a speech to a room full of reporters. I personally had a horrible stutter when I was a kid. I still stutter. Mm -hmm. But I learned to work past it. I still struggle with speech on occasion. I have to take long pauses. But to see a young child with a stutter overcome a stutter because of a newfound confidence, because he was inspired by somebody... That's impressive, and that means a lot to certain people. Mm -hmm. uh, the other quote that I have is uh, when they're approaching the Cotton Bowl, Dennis Quaid, Coach uh, Schwarzenwalder, Schwarzwalder, Coach, Coach, says uh, <laughs> says to the team, "I want you to take a good long look at this because in Texas, football is a religion." Yeah, that's yeah, good. That was fine. That was good. Uh, I got a couple here. Uh, so after Ernie gets done talking to Jim Brown about whether or not he wants to join the team at Syracuse, he ends up talking to the coach, and coach says, oh, so you're talking to Jim, and he has a good quasi-paternal relationship with Jim, but also Jim is a very strong personality and, you know, is obviously not totally in love with his experience at Syracuse and playing college ball, understandably. And so he says to Ernie to try and, um, you know, basically do any damage control. He says, uh, take what Jim says with a grain of salt. And Ernie says, and what if he said that you were a good coach? And, and Dennis Quaid says, oh, then what I'd say is, too much salt is bad for you. Which yeah. <laughs> I thought was kind of a clever line. Um, and then uh, I've got one more. When they were reviewing tape on Ernie, uh, when they're they're in the projection room before they even approach him. At the end of it, Dennis Quaid says to Clancy Brown, he says, has he got any offers? Clancy Brown says, yeah, only about 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had one quote. This was kind of in the earlier portion of the movie. Dennis Quaid's character notices that some girls on the field were, were waving at him. And he recognizes, the coach recognizes that that time and place that certain people would feel certain ways about certain people associating with other certain people. Which is almost verbatim what he says. Yeah. 
and he he makes the comment to Ernie, because you're a smart kid, Davis. I don't have to spell it out for you, do I? And even though that's such a you know, like a painful quote, or it acknowledges a, a painful truth in that in that time and place, this movie was all about not so subtle barriers being broken down or being pushed past, or or just acknowledging that there were certain struggles that certain people had to go through. That it's, it's just very powerful. Well, and I think what's important about that scene and that interaction is it ties so beautifully into a later quote that we gave that in many respects was the foundation of this movie, which was uh, maybe, just maybe, Coach, that the rules down here are your rules too. And that was just it. It's like, basically, by saying that, you know, I can't even look at white women, I can't date white women, I have to, you know, stay 50 yards away at all times, blah, blah, blah. What you are saying is that you are complicit in the, you know, racist structures that are being imposed on me by the rest of the society, you're, you're complicit in those. That actually brings up another quote that I did write down that I forgot to mention. Um, Ernie's friend on the football team is sort of taking him under his wing and like guiding him through Syracuse, right? So immediately after the conversation that Ernie has with Coach about, I don't have to spell it out for you, do I? They're talking about it and he goes, yeah, we call that the white girl speech. And Ernie goes, that's funny, I don't recall seeing that in the brochure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's an important scene for the development of the character of the coach. In the same way that, that there's that other character that came to develop himself and to develop his views to a more uh, empathetic and tolerant position, the coach does that as well. And he does it in a much more subtle sense. Not subtle in that it's not called out, it is, but subtle in that you're not asking this guy to not use, like, racially charged language. You're not asking him to not berate somebody who's black and not berate somebody who's white on the football field. You're simply asking him to not be complicit in racist mores, basically, like, racist tradition in the United States. You're basically just asking him, like, just don't feed into this. And his character does evolve in that way, but couldn't have evolved if they didn't triangulate the character's position in this scene and in the, the future scene in West Virginia. They didn't establish a baseline to, to evolve from. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, so I think, is that, is that what we get on quotes? Are we, mm-hmm. we lured in with quotes? Uh, so we did get an email. Woo! Uh, we did get an email. Um, Grandpa Jack? Grandpa Jack. Grandpa Jack uh, emailed us and um, pointed out that we actually left out a kind of critical scene. Critical. I mean, honestly, you honestly won't understand the movie Enemy of the Gates if you don't see the Park Candle scene. Yeah. There's a, there's a beautiful scene, a, a beautiful scene, you know, this is going back to Enemy of the Gate, where the soldiers are, they're in the barrack, and everyone's just, the, the picture. everyone's just having a, a grand old time music playing, and... They're dancing and celebrating life. Yeah, yeah, and in the background, you see uh, this fine gentleman of a soldier um, extinguish a candle uh with an unusual instrument that one doesn't typically put a candle out with i would i would say that it's like it's on the same vein as like a trombone or a trumpet we call it the bow trumpet yes right yeah uh, the stern trumpet the stern trumpet the stern trumpet yeah fella farted out a candle um 
And that happened. And we forgot to describe that in, in Enemy at the Gates. And um, Grandpa Jack called us out on Grandpa it. Grandpa Jack did, it reached out to us and helped us understand that that was a critical scene that we needed to describe. And uh, Grandpa Jack, I hope we did you justice with our description of the fart candle scene. Let us know if we can do better. Yeah, if if you need more description than that on the fart candles. You know how to we, reach us. We honestly, we even dug into the literature, and I, I honestly wish... I was joking that we dug into the literature on this, but um, we actually dug up a paper on... It was a peer-reviewed fl- article. Flatulence. I, I think it was Proceedings from a Conference. It's possible. I think it was, it was Proceedings from a Conference on uh, Digital Gaming. And it... The, the it, article it, it, it was, was titled Frontlines and Flatulence. Yes, and it was uh, basically a write-up on anecdotal accounts of Finnish fart games during World War II, which I have to imagine are they, they're going to be comparable to Russian fart games during World War II. Right? I would imagine so. Yeah, like, they can't be too far off. Farts are universal. Fart, everybody likes farts. Um, not as much as Grandpa Jack likes farts, but everybody loves farts. I mean, if you're calling us out, you've got you've got a certain uh, affinity. Yeah. For the for the flash of life. Um. All right, Grandpa Jack. I hope we uh hope we got you there. Appreciate you, Grandpa Jack. Are we uh we ready to conclude? Maybe rate this up. We're gonna bake this potato. All right. Uh, I'll leave this off. I will give this eight point zero Heisman's. Alright. Nailed it. Ah, see this that's why I leave this off. Because you know, he's yeah. See, I see your eight point zero Heismans and raise you eight point one MVPs. If Mark doesn't go eight point two, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm going seven point nine footballs. Footballs, I guess. I was gonna mm. go Heisman, but thank you very much, Ron. Foosballs. Foot leatherbacks. I don't want my Bobby playing foosball with them gargantuan. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Musa. Did they ever catch that gorilla with escape from the zoo and punched you in the eye? <laughs> no, 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 ma- no, no, mama. The search continues. That was actually voted one of the greatest sports movies of all time, and it was actually rated the number one sports comedy in history. Really? Um, yeah. Above uh, Caddyshack. Yeah. Which. I got to admit, head to head, I would take the water boy over Caddyshack. Yeah, I would. I I think it's funnier. I agree. I I love I, it. I've never seen Caddyshack. I haven't. Now, so your preference is the water boy? Uh, yeah. Now, now here's a different question: Happy Gilmore or Water Boy? Both, both Caddyshack and Happy Gilmore are golf movies. So I do love both of those movies. If you would ask me 20 years ago, I think I would have said Happy Gilmore. But to be honest, nowadays I think I would say I think I would say The Waterboy. I think I think objectively I think that is a slightly better made film. All right. But I love Happy Gilmore. As well. I lean towards Happy Gilmore. I think most people would be in your camp. And I, you know, you know, it could be. I may have overwatched Happy Gilmore. That's entirely possible. The other thing it. is, a lot of people in our generation have more exposure to Happy Gilmore. It is a newer film compared to Waterboy. Is it? Yeah, Waterboy came out later. No, I'm pretty sure Waterboy came out first. I don't know. Uh, Doesn't really matter, but I, I I can look it up later. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll look it up. I, I I feel like Waterboy came out later, but um, all right. So uh, is that all we got? That's all I got. That's all I got. 
That's all I've got. Uh, that is all for the old crap review. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any ideas for movie reviews, please email us at three. That is the number three. Men and a basement at gmail.com. Um, we didn't, we didn't have any band names. No, we didn't. Oh my god. Well, I guess we'll, another tour of Chugga Chugga Burber and Booger Mortis. Yep. Oh, Booger Mortis, dude. They were, they were freaking killing it the other day. Oh my god. It's gonna be I, hard to top that. You know what? Scene. I think I'm, I'm just gonna throw one out here retroactively. So in a scene where Ernie Davis and the two other black teammates walk into the basement room of that hotel, I'm going to say room smell. Room smell. I feel like room smell is absolutely an indie band name. Like, a neutral milk hotel and room smell. They tour together. Tell, tell, me, I'm, tell me I'm wrong. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. The Smell was a British punk band in the 60s. So room smell, not too far off base for nope. 60. The the smell was a big inspiration for room smell. Yeah, and um, pit smell, um, which is a, a a particular that's like the punk version of yeah. room smell. They're big now. Yeah. Um, nose. Nope. Just nose. That's nose. It. Nose. Yeah. Got it. Nose goes. Not nose goes. Exactly. Yes. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes and Google Play or wherever you find your podcast. And until then, I am Tom McLeod. Mark off here. Action Jackson. And uh, we'll see you in cyberspace. I did it again. <laughs>